Well, good morning, everybody. Really great to have you all here today. Thank you so much time for worshiping with us, both uh, in person and those online, and all of you over there in the chapel at our tradition service. Uh, it's a joy to bring uh, the next installment in this series on the seven deadly sins, and I hope you're like me in this way, that uh, every time we look at the uh, word sin or the instruction from God in the Bible about the dangers of sin, that we really take it upon ourselves and challenge ourselves with the question, am I living a life of disobedience or a life of devotion? Every single one of us want to live, love, and lead more like Jesus Christ, and yet we all slip and fall and slide, and, and, and we just need to commit ourselves every day. Lord, I want to live for you. I want to love you. I want to honor you in every area of my life. And sin is destructive. It destroys us. It destroys relationships. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I living a life of obedience or disobedience? Just like bad eating and not exercising is bad for us physically, just like unforgiveness and distrust is bad for us relationally, just like uh, overspending and not developing a budget is bad for us financially, sin and disobedience and carnality is bad for us spiritually. It just erodes us from the inside out. Søren Kierkegaard, a, a theologian from circa 1850, a name that some of you might be familiar with, said this, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. I'm tempted to have you turn to your neighbor and point a finger at them and call them a scheming swindler, but I won't do that. I don't want any fights to break out in church here today. But we're going to be talking today about evil schemes and evil pursuits, the fourth and fifth of the seven deadly sins in Proverbs chapter 6. A bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be able to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we're obliged to act accordingly. In other words, as long as we play dumb, you know, we kind of think to ourselves we don't have to worry about it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Charles Spurgeon, another theologian, preacher from the 1800s, said, too many think lightly of sin, therefore think lightly of a Savior. If we think lightly of sin, we don't think we need a Savior. If we think rightly about sin, we know we're desperate for a Savior. Can I hear a big amen? John Stott, 19th, uh, 1900s uh, pastor and theologian said, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet. They cannot live together in harmony. C.S. Lewis said, when we Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. And one of the great famous theologians of uh, 20,024, see it on the screen next, Rob Carlson. <laughs> Some of you who are new don't know my sense of humor in saying he's already forgotten his first sermon on pride. That was a joke, that was a joke, that was a joke. But what's not a joke is what's on the screen. This is true. We do not drift into godliness. We must choose devotion over disobedience every single day. Would you agree with that? Here's a question for all of us to ask. What are we willing to substitute? What are we willing? Where am I willing to compromise? Where's that vulnerability? Where's that weak spot? Where's that area where I'm willing to say yes to sin and no to godliness? Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, train yourself to be what? Godly. First Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7 says, make every effort to add to your faith godliness. 
How is that going? How's it going for you and me? How, how is it going? Are we in a forward, upward trajectory of godliness? The seven deadly sins from history we've looked at each week is a good list. It's a biblical list. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride. The Bible talks a lot about it. It's a very notorious list, but it's not an exhaustive list. There are many sin lists in Scripture. On the BCA app, I, in the sermon notes, I've listed a bunch of those lists of sins that you can look at at your convenience. The one that we're looking at during this series is the one in Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. And here it says, there are six things that the Lord hates. Do we hate what God hates? Do we love what God loves? There are six things God hates, seven that are detestable to him. Do we detest sin like God does? What are those seven? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, those that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises evil schemes, and feet that run quick into evil. We're going to look at those two today. Next week, we're going to look at a false witness who pours out lies, and then the following week, a person who stirs up conflict. Evil schemes and evil pursuits. That's what we're going to talk about today. Evil schemes and evil pursuits. Conniving evil schemes. You know, the Bible talks about David and uh, Bathsheba. It talks about the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Two uh, stories that are in contrast to one another. We're going to look at those case studies in just a moment. I think the beatitude that speaks to this whole heart issue is the one where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right living, righteousness. Not scheming, evil scheming or evil pursuits, but a heart that is hungry for always doing the right thing. That is the call of God upon our lives. Evil schemes and evil pursuits. What does it mean to be an evil schemer? It means plotting, conspiring. Evil pursuits refers to a callousness toward committing sin. A disregard for God's ways and God's word. Total disregard for God's ways and God's word. Psalm 1, uh, 19, 9, 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word, God's ways. As I mentioned, two of the most notorious scheme, evil pursuit stories in the Bible are the story of David and Bathsheba and Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And I want to look at these in turn. First of all, I want you to notice the story of David and Bathsheba. We read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 27. But I want us to go back to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17, where David uh, kills Goliath. I mean, David is at the pinnacle of his faith. He is a young lad full of faith and enthusiasm and confidence in God, and nobody else will fight the giant, but he says, I will do it, God will go with me, and he goes, and you know the story, he slays the giant. He's just at the top of the mountain faith-wise. He becomes a mighty warrior for Israel, and, and he goes out and he conquers and vanquishes the enemy, so much so that the crowd would shout, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. He was an incredible warrior, captain of the army, mighty man of faith. But oh, how the mighty fall. 
From that moral pinnacle, he went on a moral freefall. So by the time you go from 1 Samuel 17 all the way over to 2 Samuel 11, we see David lower than low. And we don't have time to read our way through this entire chapter, but let me highlight just a couple of things. It says in verse 1 that at the time where kings go to war, in this case David sent Joab, his captain, he didn't go to war. That's an important thing to note in my mind. As a mighty warrior, he should have went, but he did not. In verse 2, he sees Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop below. And I want you to notice the words that I put on the screen. He sees what he likes, he schemes what he wants, and he gets what he shouldn't have. Evil schemes, evil pursuits, evil intent. He says, come sleep with me. She does. In verse number five, she says, I'm pregnant. And so the scheming intensifies, the scheming worsens, and he descends into a very, very dark place. And God hates all of this, as we will see in just a moment. And he calls Uriah home from the, the front of the battle, and, and he says, you know, go, take leave, sleep with your wife. He's hoping to cover up his, his sin. But Uriah is a man who has more integrity in his little finger that David has in his entire being at this moment in time. And he sleeps on the porch. He won't even go in. He says, how can I do that when my brothers are fighting for their lives? And so he goes back into battle. And we continue to read, and David starts to panic a little bit, and he says to Joab, he says, put Uriah on the very front of the front line. In hand-to-hand warfare, that meant certain death. And sure enough, Uriah was killed in battle. It says in verse 17 that Uriah is dead. The battle that was waged was very, very difficult, and Joab and the army of Israel was routed. And uh, he didn't quite know how to tell David. So he sent a messenger back and he says, tell him what's happened, but then be sure you say at the end, Uriah is dead. Full of anger, David, over the losses that his army was experiencing. When he heard those words, Uriah is dead, all of a sudden his entire demeanor and countenance changed because he had an ulterior motive in play, an evil intent at work, evil scheming and evil pursuits working their way through this whole story. What did he say? He said to the messenger, don't let this upset you, verse 25. Don't let this upset you. Notice how far David has fallen. You know, there's a, just a note that I want to say right here. Compromise always saps courage. He was a man of great courage and great faith, but his compromise sapped all of it to the point where in verse 27, probably the greatest understatement in the entire Bible, it says, what David had done displeased the Lord. Notice the consequences of David's sin were many. Death of sons, plural, treason, rebellion, incest, insurrection, rape, family in shambles. David's story is a clear picture of Galatians 6, 7 through 9. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please a sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from that spirit will reap eternal life. 
Friends, you can make your own choices, but you cannot pick your own consequences. They come bundled. Bad choices, disobedience to God, are bundled with judgment and difficulty. Obedience is bundled with reward and God's blessing. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, we are blessed when we obey and we are cursed when we disobey. It's an axiom that runs all the way through Scripture. You can choose whatever you want to do, but you cannot choose the consequences. It comes bundled. David's story, fortunately, takes an upward swing. He realizes the folly of his ways. He comes before God and he throws himself at God's mercy. And in Psalm 51, he prays a prayer of deliverance, one of the greatest contritional, confessional prayers in all the Bible. And he uses words like this, have mercy on me, God. Blot out, wash away, cleanse me. I know my transgression. My sin is forever before me. I know, God, that what you want is a contrite and a broken heart. And God forgave him and later called him a man after his own heart. But I want us to look a little closer at 2 Samuel 11. I want us to look at the dark descent of David. I want us to look at David's dark descent. And I want to point out a few things that I think we can apply to our own lives. The first one is this. He was not busy doing the right thing and instead did the wrong thing. Verse number one. There are two ways to spell the word idle. He was idle, not doing anything, and so he had time and room and margin to fulfill his idle lust, sexual sin. He was not busy doing the right thing. Instead, he did the wrong thing. Are we busy doing godly things? Are we busy serving God and serving others? Are we busy doing the things we need to do? Or do we have a lot of time to daydream about how we can disobey God? Verse number two, we see he was willing to compromise and was not in control of his thought life. He saw Bathsheba, instead of moving in a different direction, he pondered, he meditated, he thought about it, he teased it out, he wondered, he contemplated. He conspired to sin with total disregard for God and other people, verse number three. He didn't think for a moment about what he was about to do, how that would hurt Bathsheba, how it would cost him his sons and hurt his family, or Uriah, or sin against God, or sin against the nation, or wreck his reputation as the king. He didn't care about any of that. In verses 4 and 5, we see that his evil schemes and evil pursuits resulted in blatant disobedience. If we continue to have evil schemes and evil pursuits, it'll eventually break out in full-blown disobedience. He had a dark heart. David had a dark, dark heart. Number five, he was blinded by pride and power, and he tried to cover it up, verses 6 to 13. We talked about this last week. If we try to cover things up, it is not going to work. The Bible says what's done in secret will one day be shouted in the streets. You can try to conceal it, but God's going to reveal it. Be sure your sins will find you out. That was last week's message, and David lived it. And then he descended into deeper sin by stacking lies and deceit. Verses 14 to 26. I mean, he was impure to the core. If we are impure here in the core of our being, it is going to spill out one way or the other. 
And finally, he thought he got what he wanted, but instead he earned God's judgment. Verse 27 again says God was so displeased. And then the consequences rushed in. David's dark descent. If we think about it, we can apply every one of those points to our life. Because every single one of us are susceptible to evil scheming and evil pursuits. And even though I'm using the sin of adultery here today because these stories are so vivid and clear to understand, you could literally apply them to every one of the seven sins from history, the seven sins in Proverbs chapter 6, 16 to 19, or every list of sin in the scripture. Evil schemes, evil conniving, evil pursuit, evil intent, evil manipulation. Compare that to Joseph's clear conviction in the story of Joseph in Genesis 39, 1-23. I encourage you to read these passages when you can this week. But this is a powerful story of conviction, integrity, and character. A building is not built overnight. It is constructed block by block, brick by brick, day by day. And a person of great character and moral conviction has built one decision and one choice at a time. And I was thinking about something I've shared before when I think about the story of Joseph. The pathology of an affair is so vivid to me in this story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now, our doctors and medical professionals uh, in our uh, services here today can talk to us about pathology, but according to the dictionary, it's the study of the origin, nature, and cause of diseases. Well, sin is a disease of the soul, and sexual sin is one of the gravest of those sins. I believe that nobody wakes up one day and ends up in bed with someone else the next day. There is a pathological sinister, scheming, evil intent at play. Evil schemes, evil pursuits. It's a process that people open their hearts and minds to, and God hates it. He detests it. He despises it. As I look at the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, I see these nine stages from Joseph's story. And oh, how it would be great if early on in this process, those that stumble into sin of whatever nature it might be, adultery is the one we're talking about, but it could be anything if they would kind of break it off early. Notice in this story that stage number one is is the notice stage. After a while, she took notice, the Bible says, quote, unquote. Potiphar's wife takes notice of Joseph. People at work take notice of each other. People in the neighborhood take notice of each other. People wherever take notice of each other. That may not be bad in and of itself, but what if it leads to stage two? She said, hello. She conversed with Joseph all the time. Hello, pleasantries, little spark thoughts. You know, that might be not bad in and of itself. How about stage three, a crush? I'm attracted to that person. Maybe things are starting to heat up here a little bit. Certainly she had something for Joseph. No question about it. It's very clear in the story. And then there's the proximity. She spoke to him every day, the Bible says. Proximity. She tried to be around him. People 
have evil schemes and conniving ways and they work late or they show up at certain places just to be around certain people. Infatuation, they can't stop thinking about them. Imagination, they begin to dream about what life might be with them. Fantasy, sexual lustful thoughts, rage. Action, there's some overt activity of one kind or another. Potiphar's wife tries to mix it up with him. Completion, the sexual act. What are you willing to compromise? What are you unwilling to compromise? What are you willing to substitute? I remember a story years ago, a good friend of mine was uh, involved in a relationship outside of marriage. And I confronted him, and I went head-to-head with him, and I said, you are not going to do this. You got little children at home. This is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. Well, it happened. I couldn't get through to him. I did something that probably wasn't really smart, but uh, I was young and uh, confronted the other person. And, uh, you know, that didn't necessarily go well, but... uh, you know, you, you try what you can. You know, when there's three little kids involved, um, you try whatever you can. And somewhere along the way, this pathology of an affair was not interrupted. It was allowed to continue. It was encouraged. And evil scheme upon evil scheme and evil pursuit upon evil pursuit piled up where one marriage is destroyed and an adulterous relationship continues. Our culture celebrates sexual infidelity, but sexual sin is destructive and God hates it. If you look at just Proverbs chapter 6, 16 to 19, you see how God hates sin. But if you go back to Proverbs 5 and jump ahead to Proverbs 7, those three chapters talk a lot about sexual sin. It's a sinister scheme and an evil pursuit. A person of integrity walks faithfully with God and their convictions are attuned to potential danger. And we all need an internal alarm. It's called the Holy Spirit. An internal alarm that goes off within us, you know, just blaring, loud, you know, watch out, watch out, watch out. And that needs to go off long before stage nine and before stage eight, and before stage seven, and back up the stages. Joseph practiced something that I want to call, and I haven't read this anywhere else, so this is powerful. You'll want to write this down. The pig plan. Have you heard of the pig plan? It says in Proverbs eleven twenty two, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman, let's also add man, who shows no discretion. So if you find yourself becoming infatuated with someone that's not your spouse, I want you to remember this part of the sermon, if you forget everything else. Start to remember them looking like a pig. How many like that idea? The big snout. But I want you to add on top of this pig all the barnyard smells. Can we work this up a little bit? I mean manure, uh, other pigs barfing soybean and corn all over its back. You smell it, it's repulsive, you're regurgitated. That's what I want you to picture. 
Don't picture everybody at their best. Picture it like that. Like a gold ring and a pig snout is a beautiful man or woman who shows no discretion. Joseph ran as fast as he could away from that stench because he knew what it meant and he was unwilling to compromise or substitute. We need to be honest with ourselves. God does not tempt us. We tempt us. We put ourselves in positions to be tempted. We're the evil schemers, not God. We're the evil pursuers, not God. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to starve our mind of anything that leads towards sin. The Bible says in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, desire conceived gives birth to sin, and sin full grown gives birth to death. We need to be aware of the enticements of sin. I love this illustration. I've used it before, but I just always think of it, so I want to share it again because not all of you have really thought of it in this way. But, you know, you've got a fish looking at a hook. And just look at this process. The fish says, I see the worm. That's temptation. The fish says, I desire the worm. That's lust. The fish says, I must have the worm. That's fantasy. The fish says, I'm going to eat the worm. That's action. And then the fish asks, why did I eat the worm? That's death. That's basically what James is saying in James 1, 13 to 15. You can choose whatever choice you want to make, but you cannot choose the consequences. They come bundled. I look at the various case studies. We looked at a few last week. And we looked at the two today. And there's a picture of some who've done it right and some who've done it wrong. Joseph did it right. David did it wrong. Joseph did it right. Samson did it wrong. Joseph did it right. Achan did it wrong. Adam and Eve did it wrong. Joseph did it right. Jesus did it right in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted in the wilderness three different times and he did not sin. Think for just another quick minute about Joseph's path to integrity. He withstood temptation. He stiff-armed it. He, he ran the other way. He was not willing to substitute or compromise. He stood strong as a man of character. And I think there are th- three things that really jump out to me about his story. He had a vision to honor God and his purposes. Do you have a vision above anything else to honor God and his purposes? He had a deep conviction to do the right thing. He wanted to do something that pleased and honored his God. He had a mindset to do things the right way. And a really, really good pair of Adidas running shoes. He ran fast. He got out of there quick. You know, sometimes that's the key. We need to get out of a certain environment or around people or, uh, you know, whatever it might be that takes us down and turns us dark. Hurts our reputation, our character. Now this next part might be the most important part of this message because I know within the sound of my voice there are going to be people right here in this room watching online right now, maybe catch the message later in the week. People in other venues 
What if I've fallen? We go back to Psalm 51, David's prayer of confession. What if I've fallen into sexual sin? What if I've fallen into any other kind of sin? Is there any hope for me? And the answer is absolutely yes. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But we need to recognize the folly of our ways and realize our great need for God's mercy. I mean, we, we need to come clean. David did. He's a great example of that. We need to confess our sin to God and beg for forgiveness. God, forgive me. Forgive me. I've blown it. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against other people. Forgive me. We need to find restoration and a new beginning by honoring God from that day forward. We need to determine that from this day forward, I'm going to make the best, the rest of my life, the best of my life by living a life of obedience and honor to God. And particularly if you've sinned sexually and committed adultery, you need to seek the forgiveness of your spouse, and you're probably going to need to get Christian counsel to work through that. I've seen it many, many times, and sometimes people can rebuild, and sometimes they can't. And in every case, they desperately need Christ to help. Smart steps for every marriage and for every family. But I want to talk to marriages specifically here today. Make your spouse number one. Focus your attention here. If you're married today or you think you might be married one day, I want you just to think, how can you make your spouse the most important person in your life? You may not always get it right. You might stumble around, but, but, but you're working at it. Ask yourself that question. How can you make sure that they are the focus? Invest your marriage. Find ways to show that you care. I'd recommend the five love languages. Many of you have read it. Not everybody. I'd encourage everybody to read it if you... Uh, are married, or if you uh, have family relationships, it's worth your read. And then protect your marriage. Protect your marriage. Protect your marriage from evil schemes and evil pursuits. Protect your marriage from anything and everything. If somebody broke in your home and tried to hurt your family, you would fight them to the death. And so would I. And yet sometimes we're just so open to letting all sorts of sin and compromise and... and uh, uh, you know, carnality into our lives and homes and thought life. And we don't fight that off through the power of God's spirit and prayer, and we need to. We need to protect our marriage. And then we need to grow our marriage. No matter what stage you are in life, find ways to grow. Lisa and I have been married 38 years. How can we continue to grow our marriage? Some of you have been married one year. How can you grow your marriage? Some of you are about ready to get married. How can you begin at the very beginning to grow? Some have been married much longer. Some have been married much less. Some of you aren't married, but maybe one day will. Some of you have sons and daughters who are married. And God's calling you to pray for them like you have never, ever prayed for them and their marriage, their families.
Satan is a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And I have been praying all week and I pray again here today that God will save families and marriages that might be a little bit on the precipice of going the wrong way. That God will restore marriages and families that need to put things back together. The devil wants to con us into thinking evil scheming and evil pursuits, evil desires and evil intent are okay. Let's just kind of play with it a little bit. It will burn us every time. We need to run like Joseph. Run like Joseph. And if we've blown it, we need to confess with a contrite heart like David. God loves us. God will help us. God will strengthen us. Lord, I thank you for every uh, home represented here today, both in this service, online, other venues, other places. God, anybody that captures the message here. God, I pray that we'll just take the words of Scripture and apply them to our own life. We can go down the dark descent of David or we can climb the mountain of conviction with Joseph. And I pray, God, you just challenge us, challenge us by your Holy Spirit to the core to be the people you've called us to be, people of character, people of integrity, people of conviction. Help us not play with sin, dabble with sin, snuggle up with sin, but run the other way. We know when we're scheming. We know when our intent is off. We know when we're pursuing the wrong things. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that we will be more alert to what you're saying to us. May we pray that we'll be more aware of what you're communicating to our hearts. May we be pure at the core of our heart and mind. With every head bowed and every eye closed, and I'd just like to ask everybody to pray for a moment. How many would say, Lord, we need a miracle in our marriage or a miracle in our family? Would you just raise your hand if that's you here today? We just need a miracle. We need God to do something special in our marriage or our family. Regardless of what that means, you just need God to do something very, very special in your marriage and in your family. Just lift your hand. God bless you. God bless you. Second question, how many raise your hand and say, Pastor Rob, I'm, I'm guilty of and I struggle with evil scheming and evil pursuits. My mind just kind of stirs in a wrong direction at times, and I need God to break that, break that, break that. Would you just raise your hand and hold it high? You're raising your hand to the Lord. You're just saying, I just need the Lord to help me with that here today. God bless you. Maybe you're here today and You've never really committed your life to Jesus. I want to encourage you to commit your life to Christ today. Or maybe you've known the Lord in the past, but today you know you need to recommit your life to Christ. You can do so by just simply praying, Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sins. I want to follow you. I want to put you first. And if you pray that prayer, please, please tell me about it. Take that connection card that's in front of you or, or online and, and just take one quick minute Fill that out. I want to be praying for you this week. 
God will help you and bless you and send you some information about your next walks with Christ. Thank you, Lord, for being with us here today. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.